0: Arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis, in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane, in 10 bulky gunny sacks, are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Xenophobia is the fear of that which is perceived to be foreign or strange. Xenophobia can manifest itself in many ways involving the relations and perceptions of an in-group towards an out-group, including a fear of losing identity, suspicion of its activities, aggression, and desire to eliminate its presence to secure a presumed purity. Xenophobia can also be exhibited in the form of an uncritical exaltation of another culture in which a culture is ascribed an unreal, stereotyped and exotic quality. How many times in history have we seen a clash of cultures, cluttered with suspicion and fear, and all ratcheted up? I think of the American Indian and the white man, and perhaps the isolated African tribes and their astonishment upon seeing a white man for the first time. In the book, The Nebula Planet, the Antarian and Galactic Command, although human, share the same suspicions and misgivings about their foreign counterparts. Perhaps the most egregious and indeed bold manifestation of xenophobia is about to take place in this final episode. Ross has met the Masarvik in peace, but the culture has no use for the culture of Galactic Command, and they have the advancement to do something about it. Galactic Command by Robert P. Fitton, the final episode begins now.
1: Polonis 756A, Explorer Spaceship 14, Main Link, GC Polonis, Mothership 11, Polonis 143-13, Humana 2155. No additional links. Sector, not charted. The security party sent to Planet Axon Boromia 7 has found significant and detailed proof of Antarian involvement with Commander John Jack Bragg. Commander Bragg was seen on 11 by grace with Antarian agents in the encampment area outside the central Baroma City. Two Baromian peasant women witnessed the vaporization of Commander Steve Donaldson's crew by the Antarians. Donaldson is still missing. Upon the threat of death, they were told to withhold all mention of ESS-27 personnel death. Commander Bragg was then seen with Governor Boosmith in Governor Boosmith's office, portraying himself as Commander of ESS-27. Bragg is in possession of a Level 1 disk held by Command Intelligence on ESS-27. The agent was killed and is unknown whether Commander Bragg or the Antarians have deciphered the contents of the sensitive disk. Commander Lindsay has informed me, ESS-27 has ignored all attempts by this vessel to halt its forward progress. Lindsay also noted the entry by ESS-27 into the NGC-1275 system, bordering the Panhandle Nebula. As this report was being readied for transmission and storage, ESS-27 was preparing to orbit the fourth planet of the system, known as the Nebula Planet. Because of ESS-27's proximity to NGC-1275, I have continued full battle alert status. Commander Bragg has repeatedly been ordered to surrender ESS-27 or be engaged in battle. The nebula is now visible without enhanced viewing devices. Commander Lindsay reiterates, such a nebula in the vicinity of this planet with no detectable gravitation is unusual. The linear energy lines from the nebula have been moving and intensifying into the third sector. Frequency signals and coil function have been impaired by space-time compression waves from these lines. Lindsay and his section are following the situation and suspect a Zorka origin. As a matter of note to command, Nancy Burke, viewer-bender on this voyage, has been confined for two days in the ship's medivac. Dr. Pfeiffer has requested details of her condition from command stored in Section 15. Ross, commanding ESS-14. Thank
2: you, Mr. John B. Ross, <laughs> explorer Space Station B. I am the captain the Army of the Army of the Army. I am the of the Army of the do, do the Galactic Command will. We we to take we the uh, to we award, you, you the do the do the do the do the do the we the do the do the to the the do the do the the do the
0: Chapter 22, ESS-27's propulsion decks now look more like an institute science facility. Ellison set up landing party equipment inside room-separating panels. As he stepped from the conveyor, Ross heard the doctor's voice booming under the coil catwalks. He skirted one of the textured blue panels and faced a flat-screen monitor with a graphic orange and yellow depiction of the tug-drag in the ship. The gravity trough, without the Marsevic people in control, appeared in green as a threatening whirlpool. ''I'm about to break that tug-drag,'' said Ellison that's amazing you've only been back here an hour and a half doctor said Ross how did you do it field reversal but that's not our problem we are being taken through the trough's gravity he ran his finger slowly along the monitors wide twisting trough this XANF plane the area of matter accretion is quite evident even though we cannot visually see it I fear this ship will be taken forward into the convergence where all time and space collapses and a two-dimensional shield spreads outward. Ross, while he trusted Ellison's intelligence, getting out of a gravity trough pull remained one of the more impossible achievements in the galaxy. Well, there has to be another way for this vessel to leave the cryptus. If we had breakaway speed, we might be able to scan the cryptus' interior within our own dimension. Ross gazed at the actual observational image through the side monitor. Captured within the cryptus, The trough had acquired a minimal amount of matter. Everything from the surrounding star systems and deep space was swept inward, producing a swirling accretion. Wave simulations on the viewer showed a slow spinning mass spiraling downward into the collapsed star and into another space-time. I'm not sure how they have the power to hold a gravity trough in check. It must be a trick we're not aware of. You are correct, Ross. If we had power to maneuver this ship, we could at least search for another cryptus opening. Burrowing through the dimension distorts all readings. Ellison stepped toward the open area below the coil catwalks and waved. That would be my man O'Leary's confirmation check from inside the dimension. Seconds later, a dimensional hole formed in the air near Ellison. The blonde haired O'Leary stood upright inside the darkened space. I think I need a fresh compact, said O'Leary from inside. I think we may be all joining you soon if we don't get any closer to that trough, said Ellison as one of the other research people carried a white compact forward and handed it to O'Leary inside. O'Leary then pulled out the old compact and snapped on the new glossy white one over his shoulder. We'll check back in fifteen minutes, Ellison said turning to Ross, but I would say if we're not free of this trough in double that time we need to burrow back to the planet agreed. O'Leary adjusted the new compacts air bubble. Good luck, Howard. Godspeed. The hole quickly sealed, relegating O'Leary to watch Ellison through the low-light dimensional barrier. Ellison sat in one of the console chairs, balancing his knuckles on his chin. He looked up as Ross leaned over. Learning exactly how they contain the trough would help our own science. I have 55 minutes before the inevitable. "'All I know, Doctor, is staying on the ship will lessen that opportunity. "'We don't want that trough's pull stopping our ability to burrow back,' said Ross, "'captivated by the extensive swirling particle whirlpool into the Xanath plane. "'Actually, I would re-enter the dimension after O'Leary's next check-in. "'When we get back to the planet, I can take readings "'and somehow see if I can break through the dimensional static "'and we could conceivably locate another opening.' "'Sounds like a good course,' said Ross.' He walked across propulsion to the Medifac where Pfeiffer sat on a stool in front of several console monitors filled with colorful dual-spinal base scans at the molecular level. Trying to figure out that recombinant altoric disorder, Hey, Mike? Pfeiffer continued to look at the screen. I'm studying Nancy Burke's problem. How? I had everything stored in my compact when they brought me through. See, it's so simple, but this is what we saw before, said Ross, leaning closer. I can magnify it, John. The Acry enzyme. It's so obvious. I think she was exposed to something that caused that escalation. The enzyme not to be produced? No, no, no. It caused the enzyme malfunction and accelerate everything. Damn. Ross sat back in the chair and tried not to relive Nancy's death once again. John, I think she was exposed somewhere to an odd combination of high-frequency waves, some of which may have been naturally occurring, but all occurring at once. Well, I suppose a planetary scan of polonus cells on the mothership would put all those factors together. Right now, I'm hoping Ellison has figured out something with this gravity trough. Three frequencies, one is a simple microwave, the other two are higher up, but we'll put them together over a short period of time and it changes the enzyme qualities. Ross put his hand on Pfeiffer's shoulder. I don't mean to diminish what you found, Mike, but my problem right now is how we get the hell out of this cryptus and back home. Fifa looked up and smiled. I could win a Garibaldi Harcourt Citation, but that won't do me much good if we're spending the rest of our lives on that third planet. Exactly. Ross left the ship's metafact, the interior walls a deeper shade of blue than his own ship, and he approached propulsion. Nancy's bright eyes filled his thoughts. He had met her on Markup 4 on his first assignment after being commissioned. She was a minor bender passing through on a transport vessel, younger and vital, having just covered a political story involving the then Commander Ebert's appointment as territorial governor of the Altair portion of the sector. Somewhere from the time she raised a cocktail glass at the Commander's residence until he met her on the mother ship's pit bar, she was exposed to Pfeiffer's combination of high-frequency waves. Ellison hovered over the propulsion chief's monitors below the catwalk and conferred with the remainder of his research staff. In 18 minutes O'Leary would open the dimensional hole and they would be forced back to the planet. Ross wondered about ESS-14, whether it had survived the orifice and what course Lindy would have taken. Ross, putting himself in that position at this great distance, would have the option of heading back to command or finding two missing officers. Wanting command might be the better choice. Commander Ross, said Ellison. As much as my reputation precedes and sometimes embarrasses me, I can't claim to tame the efforts of a gravity trough in 17 minutes. My colleagues and I suggest we burrow back to the planet now before any of this power affects our ability to use the other dimension. Well, contact and Let's get out of here, said Ross, staring at the rotating graphic. Allison nodded, and headed under the catwalks to a spot near the consoles where O'Leary had opened up the dimension. He waved his long arm into the air again, half smiling, as he waited for O'Leary to open up the dimensional hole. He looked back toward Ross and the others for a moment, and although O'Leary could not hear him inside the dimension, he spoke into the air. "'Rick, open the dimension!' "'What's the problem, doctor?' asked Ross, walking across the grid in front of the others. "'Well, I don't know. He obviously can see us. Where is he?' "'The trough wouldn't be affecting this, doctor,' said one of his men at the side monitors. "'Could it be the Marsavik people? They're controlling that orifice. "'Maybe they figured out what we're doing.' Ross put his hands on his hips and stood between Ellison and the research team. "'O'Leary! O'Leary!' Ellison was a rational man, but he was near panic. "'If we can't get him out, we don't go in.' "'And we're trapped on a vessel heading into a gravity trough.' said Ross, as Pfeiffer rushed from the Metafact Corridor. When you broke the tug-drag, they must have scanned our presence here. What happened? asked Pfeiffer. Oh, the Zorka surrounding the trough have just sentenced us to a quick death, Michael. Doctor, time until trough impact. Ellison shook his head. We start movement into the Xanath plane of that collapsed star in 29 minutes. Try and raise a channel to the Marsavic people, ordered Ross. Pfeiffer, release the Antarian and Commander Bragg from the Cambion. Keep them in restraint and bring them out here. Ellison grabbed Ross's arm. Moisture clouded his eyes. Ross, you don't beat a gravity trough. Well, they did. This isn't some command training exercise. We're going to be stretched into infinity and across dimensions. There's nothing you can do. Thousand pardons, Doctor, if I try. Anything on frequency? Signal's still not functional, said one of the research men. Do you realize that if O'Leary might be right here, he may not be able to get back to us? asked Ellison, both his fists clenched. Ross stomped over to the frequency console and center propulsion and activated all the open channels. They won't hear you, Commander. Oh they'll hear me. He pushed the final override. This is John B. Ross, the command of Explorer Spaceship twenty seven. I know at some level. No matter what the readings indicate, you understand this. We have done nothing aggressive toward you. There's no reason why you can't open that gravity trough orifice and let us proceed back to galactic command. Ellison, sitting on one of the side consoles, rubbed his forehead as Ross listened. Every readout from every frequency indicated scrambled signals.
1: Damn you. You want to live in want to live away from all civilizations and go ahead. I will send command representatives to guarantee your area. Our people and all the others will remain apart from you.
0: The clock ubiquitously counted down on all the monitors. In 24 minutes they would be taken by the trough and mangled beyond comprehension. Out of the conveyor, Pfeiffer and two of the research team marched Rafik and Bragg into propulsion. Why am I released? asked the Antarian. You're not. Listen, I need all the advice I can get, even from both of you. Oh, I knew you'd come around, Johnny, said Bragg. Ross winced at the sound of Bragg's voice and was about to comment when he looked at the clock again. We're being taken into the gravity trough. I fully believe the Marsaric people can open that orifice at any time. They control the orifice in the cities and around its rim, said Rafik. He moved closer and, within the restraining belt, awkwardly leaned over the monitor. Ross pointed to the graphic and the rim in red surrounding the wide green cyclone trough. I just sent out signals on all frequencies. I know they heard me. Threaten them, Ross. Tell them our combined fleets will destroy this cryptus. That's not going to work. They know about our conflict and they can scan back to command. I would say that that is the primary reason for the parceling and why we are being killed. Graphic smiled as if he enjoyed going out in glory. Shame! The Caleb's aurea would have made us all powerful, and your drak beams are useless. The draks are all charged, but function at levels that wouldn't kill a flea on a fenglaus, said Ross. The Antarian smiled again as Bragg came closer. One hell of a fix! Ross stood and pushed his finger into Bragg's stomach as he spoke. One hell of a fix! And who gave out all the command transmitter coordinates in exchange for Caleb's aurea? Well, I was facing charges at the end of the war, said Bragg in a puffy voice. You were? Ah! He spun around to Rafik. Why did they want the coordinates? I don't know, Ross. My only concern was getting the Caleb Zoria. Well, at least I'll give you and one thing you state things straight. Which is more than I can say for you, Bragg. If we ever get out of here, I'll have you strung up by 15 minutes said Ellison, standing helplessly over the consoles. Ross did not see Pfeiffer in propulsion. He cupped his hands. Mike, I believe he went to the metafact, said one of the research team. Maybe he doesn't realize we have 14 minutes and 11 seconds to live. He moved around the consoles and headed into the metafact corridor. We'll live another few minutes after that, said Ellison. Oh, that's reassuring," said Ross. He sprinted 19 meters to the Metafact. Mike! Back here! Ross ran inside and found Pfeiffer scanning the readout monitors containing the Zorka genetic material. Mike, I want you in propulsion. I don't think we're going to make it out of this one. Yes, we are. Pfeiffer pointed up at the screen, and Ross tried to make sense of the brilliant, colorful molecular graphics. John, I want you to convert the DRAC batteries to varied frequencies and target the orifice rim. Ross grinned and produced the clock on the screen. I don't have to convert anything. Varied frequencies are all they're giving me, Mike. We have 12 minutes and 36 seconds. Pfeiffer stood. I know how much time is left, and I know how long it takes to adjust drag frequencies. Why? Ross pounded the console. Don't play games with me, doctor. An intense barrage, much greater than what would have affected Nancy Burke, to instantly alter the acra enzymes of any Marsavic inside that rim. Genetically, they're not exactly the same as humans. What other choice do you have? Asked Pfeiffer, crossing his arms. Ross closed his eyes. Without looking, he knew they were below the twelve-minute mark. Now, he motioned with his head as they ran through the metafak and back to the corridor. Ross escorted him past the Antarian and Ellison into the Drak batteries inside the Sky Pilot base. After racing around the Caleb Zoria stacks, they reached the battery controls at the 10 minute and 15 second mark. Ross activated the power levels and yellow graphs on a green background and looked up at Pfeiffer. Give me those frequencies, Michael. Three beams to hit all areas simultaneously. Can you do that, John? Yeah, I can do it. Maybe you will win the Garibaldi Harcourt Citation for a new effective weapon. Posthumously. This doesn't have to be precise, just the combination. First, setting 3 times 10 to the 9th to the 10th to the 11th hertz. Got that? First setting 3 times 10 to the 9th to 10 to the 11th hertz. Second, less than 0.01 angstroms. Lastly, it will be 1620 megahertz. Ross physically inputted the frequencies, and the graphs went wild over the screen. Then he prepared a specific targeting around the orifice rim. Polonis, begin the signal transmission. Transmission commencing. I only hope the trough doesn't pull this all apart, said Ross. On another monitor, he produced a display showing ESS-27 in orange, heading toward the slow spinning effects of the collapsed star spread over a distance of 300 kilometers. Such power. I want to know how they contained it. Mike, do you think this is going to work? Pfeiffer looked with Ross at the monitor's depiction of ESS-27 nearing the prodigious rotation. Damned if I know. Pfeiffer turned as Ellison and the research team, drac beams pointed, walked behind Rafik and Bragg. I applaud your efforts, Doctor. Care to calculate the odds, Doctor Ellison? Asked Pfeiffer. Could go either way, depending on the pull of the trough and the ability to alter the enzyme's work instantly. Such a weapon would be deadly in battle, said Rafik. Effective weapon until suitable shields were constructed, said Ross. Rafik wrinkled his white Antarian skin. I hope every one of them dies. They did not live up to their part of the agreement. Pfeiffer grinned. Maybe you should just declare war on them, Rafik. If we could, we might destroy this cryptus and every one of them. Ross spun around in the chair and faced everyone. Precisely the Marsavics point to me, and I don't blame the Antarians. That is wise, Ross. Either one of us would do it. We would. We would issue the damned order and attack this thing and prove them right. He turned back to the screen. With no response from the Marsavic people, the clock moved past seven minutes. He listened as the outside acceleration produced an odd, progressive blare. No one gathered in the Sky Pilot Bay said anything. When the clock passed five minutes, Ross stood. He moved to the adjacent panel and hit the communications button on a standard frequency.
1: Only you can determine whether you can withstand our attack. Unless you are prepared to die, release us from this trough.
0: Tough talk, said Pfeiffer. A commendable bluff, said Rafik. Ross turned to the Antarian. Three minutes and eleven seconds till penetration of the Xanath plane,' said Ellison. Ross did not appreciate his counting down their deaths, and only his respect for the Doctor kept him from saying anything. "'I was naive enough when I arrived on the Nebula planet to think that all Zorka civilization would be just like us. Think like us, act like us, reach out and contact.' "'So was I, Doctor. It's not the case here,' said Ross.' He had a distorted belief that Pfeiffer's frequency concoction just might work. For a moment, he watched the ship so close on the monitor from the plane, and then he turned to the Antarian, speaking above the noise. You tricked me at Marigal. His tiny green teeth moved from below his pale white lip. Complore has been served. Why? You have admitted defeat. All is equal. Sounds like a schoolyard brawl, is what it sounds like, said Ross, getting on channel again.
1: Release this ship
0: now. He pounded lightly on the console and watched the clock pass the one minute mark. Would appear my efforts have been in vain, said Pfeiffer. Ross started pacing. Nice try, Mike. Again, I commend both your efforts, said Ellison. He kept walking until the clock passed 30 seconds and then he leaned toward the monitor. At 23 seconds, the ship shuddered. Power systems dimmed and the monitor blinked out twice. Ross closed his eyes as the Sky Pilot Bay power went out. As the ship shook violently, the portable compact lights shined forward within the glow of the Caleb Zoria. No monitors were left to study. The clock had already passed zero and the mighty gravitational force inside the XANF plane region began to stretch the ship into an elongated hunk of matter. Ross grabbed the deck rails as the portable light shook across the console edges. An ear-splitting crescendo started down like an ancient airplane in freefall, and only as the sound diminished did the ship coast forward with no shaking. He scrambled from the rails and headed for the observation portal near the airlock doors. Through an opening in the trough, a tiny light pinpoint grew larger, and the nebula's pink luminescence slowly came into view. ESS-27 hovered in the trough opening as the terraformed cryptus bordering the shrinking trough revealed the civilization's vast spread of packed thin buildings. After a lull, a sudden surge pushed the ship through the open orifice at unfathomable speed, hurling them from the cryptus and toward the nebula. Mike, I take back everything I ever said about the medical profession. Pfeiffer crossed over the Caleb Zoria toward Ross. We actually went through. Let's get some power on this rig. You heard Ellison's voice from somewhere within the Caleb Zoria. I'm going to propulsion. Where's the Antarian and Bragg? asked Ross. We can't find them, said one of Ellison's team. Rafik, you can come out now. You two Bragg, or you're dead men. I'm not playing any games at this point. With the ensuing silence, Ross raised his voice. Shoot to kill. Chapter 23 Ross was elated when Ellison and his team repaired the disrupted main coil conduit lines and the ship's internal power was returned, but a complete search of the vessel showed no sign of either Bragg or the Antarian. At the Commander's Locus console, the ship's Polonus informed Ross of an escalating problem. Back at the orifice rim, raw green energy still spewed into intricate power-laden packets back into the third sector. Although not visible through the nebula, the octagon packets repeatedly multiplied on the monitor, and everything beyond, the space and the stars, were distorted by the field's density. At the present rate, one continuous energy grip would surround all of the third sector. Opinion, doctor, said Ross. Ellison studied the monitor with his brow furrowed. More of the same, it has similarities with the tug-drag, but only with greater power, drawing off the trough itself. Then we didn't kill them, said Pfeiffer. Well, we damaged them enough to let us through, Mike. Job well done, Ross stared at the readout. This enveloping field will hold the sector hostage. The power is incredible, said Ellison from the Monitor, to surround an entire sector. The parceling off of the sanctum in command. Not your problem! Ross spun around. Rafik and Bragg, both carrying battlefield beamers and grenades, moved out of the conveyor. Step away from the commander's station and drop all your drac weapons! What the hell do you think you're doing? Taking this ship! You and Pfeiffer will proceed to the Sky Pilot Base! What about Ellison and the group? asked Ross. Rafik smiled and waved the beamer. He and his people are staying. Ross half-closed his eyes in anger and tossed his weapon to the floor. So now we die. No, complore has been met. You are free to go. Just like that. What do you think you're gonna do with this ship? Command will track you down. That's the chance we take, Johnny, said Bragg. Especially you, Jack. I'd be the first one to volunteer to go out after you. Bragg's wide grin and accompanying chuckle enraged him further. Without his beamer, Ross had to follow Raffik's instructions. He stepped down the station stairs and walked with Pfeiffer past the three remaining research members up to the rim. From the corner of his eye, he saw Bragg's glistening weapon, and he turned when he reached the science station. Listen, Jack, uh, I can arrange to have any war charges dropped. Do not offer any deals, Ross, said the Antarian, quickly scampering up behind them. But Ross could see hesitancy in Bragg's blue eyes. "'Come on, Jack. You like deals. You're an officer of Galactic Command!' "'He was an officer,' said Raffik. "'Now he has the riches of the galaxy in his control. "'Why would he so quickly jettison his new life that awaits him?' "'Let's go, Ross. In the conveyor,' said Bragg. Raffik pushed Ellison and the three-team member up the rim stairs. For a second, Ross wanted to leap through the air and attack the Antarian, but he knew he could do nothing without a weapon. Under the silver-barrel beamer right, they were marched into the conveyor and brought down the neck of the ship. Ross said nothing as he seethed all the way back through propulsion. He was tempted by the pervasive aqua glow of the Caleb Zoria inside the Sky Pilot base. Most of the stacks had toppled and the luminescent blocks were scattered across the bay floor as Raffik fanned to the left, holding his weapon out. You will board one of your sub-atmospheric vehicles and leave through the airlocks, Ross. Now I demand the complore, Raffik. The Antarian seemed taken off guard and had to think about his response. Yes, I suppose even as a member of Galactic Command, you would observe our challenge. But remember, Ross, my compla has been satisfied, and I have freed you. Just how are we going to chart our way out through the nebula? The SAV doesn't have enough air to last. Not my problem, Ross, answered the Antarian. I will never forget what you have done. Ross stared directly at Bragg's pudgy face and then turned to Ellison, standing with his men. Dr. Ellison, there's any way I can get you out of this. Not to worry about me. If I were still inside the cryptus, then I would be worried. I commend your bravery and the doctor's ingenuity. I'm sure we'll meet again, Ross. Ross quickly saluted as Bragg brought them past the Sky Pilot ships. He glanced back at Rafik, arms crossed and weapon pointing to the bay girders. Even as an Antarian, a wanted war criminal, his power would be unmatched by possessing the Caleb Zoria. Bragg stepped back as they neared the tubular SAV, and the computer opened the hatchway under the small wingspan. Enjoy yourself, Johnny. I know you will. He produced a sickening grin and rolled his tongue around his cheek. Now get inside. Jack, you're a disgrace. We'll see you about it. I'll find you, Jack. Ross moved ahead of Pfeiffer and the hatchway closed before they were even up the steps to the passenger seats. That son of a bitch! There's nothing we can do, John, said Pfeiffer. Ross climbed over one of the seats and leaned against the small portal window. Bragg walked back to Rafik as Ellison looked on. Air supply in here will last five days. Readings make navigation very difficult. Maybe we'll make it to the Nebula planet. Well, that'll buy us a few months, and then we'll starve to death. Damn that Jack Bragg! I hate him more than the Antarian. I'll get him. Ross moved up front to the pilot's console, and the SAV rolled forward. Bragg at the sky pilot station overrode the ship's controls. Ahead, the airlock doors split, and they were soon sealed inside. Slowly, the small vessel was dragged into the airlock and toward the bay doors. They waited for a few minutes. Ross's eyes closed and his face reddened with anger. The sudden spring into the nebula now assured Bragg and Rafik's departure. Visually, ESS-27 quickly blended into the haze, but on the monitors Ross tracked them for 15 minutes. He leaned back in the seat when the last readings were displayed on the screen. I knew Jack Bragg right after Markham. He worked the freighters then. I didn't know that. He didn't go to the Command Institute? No. He had done some enlisted work, and as the Antarian thing heated up, he was given a supply vessel command. Somehow, he had a connection with the Council. I think it was a payoff, but nobody could ever prove it. Ross stood and peered out the observation portal ahead. The nebulous thickness and lack of navigational beacons and stars made accurate forward progress questionable. He could not gauge when the SAV would emerge from the nebula, nor was he sure what happened to ESS-14. If they did clear the nebula, he still had to deal with the honeycomb webbed energy network pushing from the orifice rim and parceling off this command sector. Chapter 24 Ross boosted the frequency signals through the nebula during the 49 hours since they had left ESS-27's airlock doors. Pfeiffer was again looking at the Zorka genetic structure on the monitor behind the seating area. Ross peered over his shoulders. I thought we had him beat, Mike. Pfeiffer, having not shaved, was as grubby as Ross. I think we both did. You work your whole damn career to make good decisions. Letting Bragg and Raffic out of those cambiants was stupid, and I probably should be written up. Good. You go write yourself up in a frequency report, John, and send it back to command. it will be like a message in a bottle, and they can pick it up when they discover the SAV with two dead officers inside. Ross tightened his brow. That's not funny. I'm not trying to be. What I'm trying to say, John, is you're being too hard on yourself. You had to get their advice, and as far as them slipping away, you couldn't have foreseen the disruption when we went through that orifice. They took advantage of us not having security on that vessel, that's all. I should have been on my toes. Ross moved up front and sat in the pilot's seat with his back to the window. He studied the readouts, indicating the nebula's edge. Then he spun in the chair. This nebula is breaking up. Pfeiffer ran up the aisle and down the forward steers. Are you sure? Look for yourself. The wispy ends of the massive magenta nebula move like fog, burning off from the warming sun. On the monitors, as well as through direct observation, the dirty brown nebula planet's brightened horizon appeared against the extensive green web background now covering the sky. That energy field, said Ross, checking his emergency beacons, is parceling off command in the sanctum. One big cage. Command must be wild, but what can they do? On the console, an incoming signal light flashed. He quickly pushed the button, and Lindy's voice penetrated the scratchy channel. ESS-27, this is Commander Hugh Lindsey. Identify yourself. Ross looked at Pfeiffer and smiled. So, you're the commander of ESS-14, are you? John? Status, Lindy. John, you're alive! I'm beginning to wonder, said Ross. You're in an ESS-27 SAV, so where is ESS-27? asked Lindy. The long-neck ESS-14 rose over the horizon line. It's a long story, and a story I hope we live to tell. John, we just got maneuvering power back. There's a galactic alert. The Zorker energy field is around everything and has cut us off from motherships ships and Earth. On your screen. Ross's eyes opened as a sector schematic showed a bulging green webbed area formed like an egg in the pan, effectively cutting off the third sector from the rest of command. ESS-14's blue hull and wingspan was fully visible now as it crossed the horizon. Bring your SAV in, John. Ebert and a number of vessels have proceeded to Axiom Baroma, but communication is incoming only and muddled. They've established a temporary base there. Ross looped the SAV in a sweeping arc to the opening sky pilot airlocks. All the while he kept staring at the all-encompassing energy field. Even with the surrounding turmoil, he sensed a familiarity and a security in returning to his own ship. The outside bay doors clamped shut and air rushed in the side jets. As the inner doors moved apart, the Sky Pilot bays were not filled with Caleb Zoria, but with his officers and crew standing at attention. The SAV rolled to a stop and he lowered the hatchway. I never thought we'd make it back here, Mike. Pfeiffer followed him past the seats and down the stairs. Ross looked into the well-lighted bays, and everyone broke into applause as his large framed second-in-command, smiling, bracing his face, moved through the aisle, separating the crew. He stopped and saluted Ross. Nice of you two joyriders to come back home. There's no joy in our ride, said Ross as he smiled, and the applause continued. Kratzpichinsky moved out and shook his hand vigorously. Muldoon had that same half-grumpy, perplexed look on his face. Frank? John? Ross tapped his shoulder and moved down the line, Rip raised his dark brows and leaned forward. Enjoy yourself, John. It's a vacation I'd like to forget, so you're not officially AWOL. Ross smiled and finally stepped into the front of the propulsion corridor with Lindy and Pfeiffer. I must say I'm damn relieved to be back here, and I thank everyone for this welcome, but I hate to be the bearer of bad news. The Zorka civilization, the Marsavric people, as you can see in all your console readouts, are creating a most difficult problem for us. I'm going to set a course back to Axion Baroma and meet with Admiral Ebert to discuss the situation. I'll be making a full entry report, which will be available to all crew members. Thank you. As they turned to a propulsion, Lindy spoke out of the corner of his mouth. John, uh, the course on Axion is charted and implemented. Good, it looks like I made the right decision. Ross smiled as they walked and hit Lindy on his shoulder. It's good to see you, Lindy. John, you're like a damn cat. You and Pfeiffer both. Ross winked at Pfeiffer, who rolled his eyes. What does Ebert say about all this? With the barrier set up, there's no travel in or out of the sector. They've isolated us. There are command vessels proceeding to this entanglement, as Ebert calls it, but we're so far out, we're only getting his general frequency channels entanglement the word is parcel they told me they were parceling up both command and the sanctum you met them oh yes a pale skinned being with wide eyes and a yellow pupil that kept opening and closing closely matted hair highly pitched voice you could hardly understand him they wished to remain isolated no contact hence the parceling ross stopped in front of the conveyor lindy Somehow they've mastered all that energy from the collapsed star. The doors opened and they went inside. Locus, welcome back, Commander. Doctor, said Polonis. Polonis, I must say it's good to hear your voice, said Ross as they started toward the Locust. I look forward to your official report. It's a doozy, believe me. Bragg and Rafik. where are they? asked Lindy. They hijacked ESS-27, again. Said Pfeiffer. The Sky Pilot bays are filled with Caleb's Aurea. What? How did they get the Aurea? From the Zorka? Yep. Even fenced in, the third sector is a vast place to peddle that stuff. Lindy exhaled and shook his head. They should have busted Bragg a long time ago. You know, everyone always says that, but nobody ever busted them. Ross gripped the side rail as the car slowed and the locust doors opened. "'John!' he called Gil Webb. He scooted up the rim stairs with his hand extended, but it turned into a full bear hug, and then he shook Pfeiffer's hand. "'I hear you had quite a journey.' "'Yes, we did. We've got a few weeks to go over it as we proceed back to Baroma. He was drawn to the green-webbed energy locked across the forward viewer. But I can see we've got our hands full.' Epilogue Axiom Broma 7 was still a dry, inhospitable planet, but many of the lonely stretches of desert had been transformed into an extensive military base. During the war, smaller versions of the reflective silver bubble enclosures were set up on distant planet battlefields, but the Antarians no longer existed in this sawed-off sector of galactic command. The thousands of command troopers, SAVs, terrain scuffers, and battlefield command posts had congregated on this planet because Ebert had anticipated an attack on the cryptus. Ebert headed the new command group of four sitting admirals and Axiom Broma 7 was established as the capital of command government structure in absentia. Ross sat next to the eight remaining explorer spaceship commanders in a grandstand erected by the engineers in front of the stucco arch governor's palace. Governor Buesmith had long since fled to some distant part of the planet. Other governors and planetary authorities who had survived the transposition were seated in a wide semicircle behind the speaker's platform. As the warming breeze moved across the desert floor, Ross gave a half wave to Lindy, seated with Kaczynski, Rip, Jim Morris, and Frank Muldoon in the fourth section from the grandstand. For the past ten minutes, Ebert had summed up the cataclysmic events of two months ago. 450,000 command troopers listened through their compacts and huge generating sound projectors atop the grandstand. Ross leaned toward his friend Chris Keller. Where's he got you headed, Chris? The long-nosed Keller shook his head. ESS-19 will be involved in that same mapping and reports as everybody else. I haven't received specific orders yet, but I think we'll be heading to Cinco Beta. Non-aligned planet? Yeah. We only have seven aligned planets left. Ebert told me they wanted to align 75% of the unaligned. Ross spoke in a low voice as Ebert continued. These planets are frontiers with their own laws and their own mentalities. Simply aligning them into some new command structure won't be the easiest task. Beyond our lifetimes, said Keller. He even dropped full alert status. Sure, there are no enemies out there. Who knows what the Antarians are doing and where they are. Sliced off like us. You think Graphic and Bragg are still within the sector? Ross squinted and gazed across the troopers to the hazy mountain horizon. I don't think we've seen the last of either of them. Keller nodded as Ebert informed them. Facilities were under construction to manufacture new ships and equipment. In ten years, the Admiral wanted to double the number of ESS ships to twenty and maybe construct a mothership freighter capacity and infusion of command marquees and personnel would prevent a complete economic breakdown. Committees were established to find deficiencies in the economic structure and replace those manufacturing and food producing planets. Part of ESS surveying would detail such possibilities back to Axiom Baroma. Where are you headed, John? Well, I'm trying to get my family together. We're all in this sector. My father is an intelligence officer, officially retired but with intelligence, who knows. I think he can pull a few strings to get us all together for a few days and then ESS-14 will begin mapping and aligning the planets. Keller shook his head. My family is safe also, but I know of so many people who were out of the sector when this happened. People will never see again. Ross slowly turned, his jaw pushed out as he pictured the cryptus and the energy warping around the sector then he visualized the small marsavic it's difficult accepting what they did but we have no choice my friend there are no mother ships only two command institutes no earth we have been totally isolated ross panned the grandstand passed ebert at the podium and toured the symmetrically placed troopers along the flat plain as keller continued as long as i live as long as i'm an explorer spaceship commander I'll never lose my resolve to somehow find the Marsavic people and avenge what they've done to all of us. Ross turned from the assembled troopers and slowly moved his head. No, Chris. We misjudged them and approached them as we would have approached ourselves when they were so different. There's nothing to avenge. Whatever happened with the transposition and the slicing up of galactic command? It's our own damn fault. A transposition of part of the galaxy eliminates the human culture from the Marsavric people. For Ross and the decimated galactic command, the situation is at first perilous. But a new reality has set in. And with that new reality is a reorganization and rebuilding of what took centuries to achieve. The more important revelation to Ross is the assumption that reason would be a part of the Marsavic people's culture. The Marsavic people simply acted in accord to what they were as beings. Perhaps humans, when dealing with other humans, might be wise to take Commander Ross's lesson to heart. I'm Robert P. Fitton, and thank you for listening to Galactic Command, the Nebula Planet. Next time, I will bring you the second novel of this series, called Reunion, where Ross gathers his family together after the transposition, including his headstrong intelligentsia father, John Ross Sr. But he stumbles into a world controlled by Saul, a being half-human and half-robotic. This is Robert P. Fitton. Goodbye for now.